Hello and welcome to Hell is for Hyphen. It's for December 2018. I am writer fifth obstruction Lee Zachariah and with me as always is... I am writer-critic-list-hater Rochelle Semenovich and with us we have a special guest, uh, Cassandra McGrath, actor slash producer slash writer slash voiceover artist slash director slash modelled once slash drama teacher slash retail assistant slash administration assistant slash professional furniture assembler and the list goes on. You wow. win. Yeah, that's. I feel quite paltry with my uh, <laughs> with my terrible list. Uh, thank you for joining us. It's lovely to have you here for the last show of 2018. That's okay. It's nice to have you join us for the reviews. We don't have a lot of guests joining us for the reviews these days. Particularly ones that haven't seen any of the films that you read. Well, this is going to be even more fun because you get to interject. <laughs> I'm going to critique your, your review. That I'm going to review amazing. the review. <laughs> that, that's, that's quite meta. There's a Latin phrase, isn't there? Who reviews the reviewers? What's that? Anyway. Well, one film that uh, two-thirds of us have seen is uh, <laughs> Alfonso Cuarón's Roma. Uh, it's the 1970s and Cleo is a maid working for a fairly well-to-do family in Mexico City. The family loves Cleo, but there is discord as the father keeps disappearing on business trips and eventually decides not to come back at all. Meanwhile, Cleo has started seeing the martial arts-obsessed Furman and the country itself is in political upheaval as government forces face off against protesters. This film has been collecting awards and praise everywhere it goes, but did it pick up the Rochelle Saminowicz Award for being a film she liked? <laughs> Look, it's, it's beautiful and amazing and a stunning achievement, I think. Just the scope of this film, the way he manages to have these scenes that have so many extras, so much going on in every frame... And yet it just looks like... It's almost documentary-like, mm. I mean, apart from being incredibly beautiful and well-acted. But, yeah, he just captures 1970s, um, this neighbourhood, I think it's the Roma neighbourhood in um, Mexico City, and the plight of this very humble woman um, who's living with this family and raising these children and being the nanny and the maid, and, and yet she's given such dignity. Mm. Yeah, it's a beautiful film. It's amazing. You can watch it on Netflix or you can watch it on the big screen. And I, I saw it on Netflix and I wish I'd seen it on the big screen. Yeah, same. Yeah. I did uh, turn off all electronics and sit as close to the TV as I could and crank yeah. it up. But uh, uh, not, not all electronics, the TV was on. But um, no, I do wish I'd seen it on the big screen because it, it looks phenomenal. It reminds me of, I think it reminds me of Italian neorealism. Or it's just because it's called Roma. I kept expecting it to be in Rome, like Mamma Roma, Pasolini's film. But it's really, yeah, it really reminds me of those old films where you just sort of take your time to exist in the moment as something big happens in the background. You know, the, the country goes through this upheaval or the family you're working for is going through its own dramas and you only get glimpses of it, snippets of it. And while while your own sort of this, you know our protagonist's drama is 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 happening in the foreground, it's um it's just it's it's beautiful, and I love I love there's a plane in every shot, like is almost there? yeah like right at the beginning there's a plane in the reflection how we're staring at the ground they're one of the probably my favourite shot of the year where mm. we're staring at the bricks and the water the most artistic depiction of mopping the floor ever ah. Oh. Love Definitely. It. I'm going to get into it now after watching this film. <laughs> it's like how all those people trained up for the Air Force after Top Gun. I'm going to start mopping bricks. <laughs> Does it go all shiny and reflect beautifully yeah. back? And, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's lovely. That's, that does sound nice. Uh, so, yeah, this is my favourite Quran film ever, I think. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's beautiful. 
Our next film is The Favourite, the latest film from Yorgis Lanthimos, director of The Lobster and Killing of a Sacred Deer. It's set in the court of Queen Anne in the early 18th century. England is at war with the French, but the frail queen, played by Olivia Coleman, is far more preoccupied with her pet rabbits and her close friend Lady Sarah Churchill, played by Rachel Weiss, who really holds the power, while also sharing the queen's bed. But when ambitious new servant Abigail, Emma Stone, turns up, the Queen's affections shift and a savage power play ensues between the three women. Lee, did this film curry favour with you? It did. Uh, it curried all the favour uh, possible. No, I, I, I really loved it. The, my um, my favourite screenplay ever is A Lion in Winter, uh, which is basically acidic palace intrigue in which every single line of dialogue is just brutally quotable and this absolutely follows in that tradition Um, I love Yorgos Lanthimos films um, but this film I think belongs to Deborah Davis who wrote the screenplay 20 years ago and uh, and also Tony McNamara who who worked on later drafts an Australian writer Australian writer yeah amazing and uh, yeah it's just the kind of like I really miss these types of films, these really character dialogue forward films that we need more of, like somebody who's just using their tongue to gain power in every possible interpretation of that phrase. (laughs) Mm, Intriguing. (laughs) (laughs) Did you like it? I loved it. I think, as you will hear later, this is maybe one of my top five films of the year. It's just brilliant it's so surprising and yeah i i read one reviewer said that they started writing down all the most quotable lines of dialogue but then realized they were just transcribing the whole script (laughs) because it's just you know so perfectly written and delivered it's shot in a really interesting way too the Mm. the use of extreme wide angle lenses and fisheye lenses to depict this this, uh, you know, period mm. detail. It looks like a security camera almost. Like, I know. Yeah. It's a strange choice and they managed to make it work with, with apparently all, almost all natural light mm. um, so it doesn't have that that gorgeous, sumptuous period feel and yet it's not ugly. Like, yeah. it's it's kind of... It takes you into a, almost well, a heightened reality with almost a horror element, which, you know... It is quite a, an intense atmosphere between these three women in at court. But I just love the the way the power shifts between each of the three characters over time, back and forth, back and forth, and, and your sympathies shift. Mm. And there's been so much discussion about which of these women is going to be nominated for Best Actor because who would be the supporting actor here? I mean, there's just mm. they're just all brilliant. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Are, you, are you tempted to see this? I really wanted to see this. I saw the ad in the cinema, and of all of the movies, that is my cup of tea. Mm. And I really want to see it because I've just finished my first draft of a feature film, which is also a period piece, which is a four-hander. Wow. And I, I got from just the trailer what I am trying... I mean, I'm sure the story's different, but what I'm trying to achieve with my screenplay, which is that dynamic of when you don't have any of the technologies or the electricities or anything of today's day and age so it, all you had really was your personality <laughs> that's it mm. and left alone in a house with as you, you know say power plays and all the rest of it um you know that i don't know i just think that's really interesting to put that in a film and yeah. spend time with that in a movie mm. rather than rely on um you know bells and whistles and tricks of you know filmmaking to entertain people so i'm really interested to see what that film's all about yeah mm. i mean I find some of 
um, Yorgos Lanthimos were really cold and cruel. I mean, there is cruelty and savagery here. But I think this is his most warm and humane film because you actually feel so much... Uh, I, th- I think there's a compassion there for the characters yeah. that I, th- I haven't I seen in right The Lobster and um, Killing Sacred of a Sacred Deer, Deer which was really not my favourite film. Tooth. Yeah, they're yeah. all quite brutal yeah. films. And it's funny because you wouldn't think of this as a warm film, but comparing it to the rest of his works... This is much more of a comedy, yeah. yeah. Well, on to Suzanne Beer's Bird Box. An apocalyptic event has occurred, as it often does, and Sandra Bullock's Mallory must take two young children on a dangerous journey to a place she believes may prove to be a safe haven. We intercut between this journey and the beginning of the apocalypse. It's unclear what is happening in the world, but one thing is certain, do not, under any circumstances, open your eyes when you're outside. Rochelle, did this film make you shut your eyes in terror or shut them in delight? <laughs> mm, mm. Tricky. It made me play with my phone for a little bit because I couldn't handle the tension. I'm like, I'm just going to like check my messages now because it's too tense. It's very scary. Mm-hmm. It's very scary. And I think Suzanne Beer has made that transition from very intimate family drama to something much broader and ambitious. Um, I think she's she's done really good work here. I do have problems with the film. Um, mm. I don't think it quite lives up to what it's trying to do. I've, I find th- it could be the original story because it's based on, an, on a novel. It's based on a novel, yeah. Um, it's written by the writer who wrote Arrival, um, Eric Heisserer. And, you know, it's it's a really gripping story. It's, it's structurally interesting because a lot of it's told in flashback. Mm. So you know these characters aren't with you at the in the present um, moment so that you know they're going to die and it's just a matter of when and how and the way that plays out is 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 well done but that central premise of them being able to navigate the world in, in a blindfold it all seems to they I, I don't know how they do it really it doesn't work for me really yeah okay you i i loved it did you I really loved it yeah i um I mean, I, I really love Suzanne Beer films. I didn't Me know too. she could do this. Like, yeah. It's a, a whole other string to her bow. I was thinking that, you know, 2018 is the year of pregnancies in the apocalypse and <laughs> escape, escaping from monsters that respond to a particular sense. Yeah. Because you look at a quiet place. <laughs> and it's the same thing. Emily Blunt's pregnant and there are all these uh, monsters that if you make a sound, they'll come mm. and get you. I actually, I preferred this to work to a quiet place and I love a quiet place yeah yeah I don't know I just really responded um, to this one I find it interesting to compare the two because John Krasinski apparently did away with the flashbacks in the original quiet place screenplay because they originally wanted to cut back to pre-apocalypse and I think that was absolutely the right move for that film but I think they're essential in Bird Box the way information is sort of eked out in parallel where mysteries and you know inevitabilities of you Mm. know who survives and who doesn't sort of create tension in both directions I don't know. No, I just, I, I, I really love it. I think she handles every type of scare from sort of creeping dread to sort of the jump scares yeah. to those crowd shots, those terrifying rioting crowd shots. Um, yeah, I, I, I really responded to this one. I did like the fact that it's a story about reluctant motherhood and, you know, Sandra Bullock is this, is this woman who, who has this ambivalence about the children in her care and you know it's a survival it's a survival thriller and she is very good in this role but i I probably shouldn't even mention this but her face is distracting and she's just like 
starting to look quite weird you know she's starting to do so much to her face and it's just like it's Mm. why why do we have to have you know this woman she's a wonderful actress and she's doing stuff to her face and I, I shouldn't be thinking about that when I'm watching a survival thriller should I I think you have to put a blindfold on next time you watch this. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a it's a solid B plus from me. Yeah, mm. that's fair. Well, that's mm. still a passing grade. Mm. And the supporting roles are great. John Malkovich is the yeah. endearing bastard, and um, uh, what's his name? The the love interest. Um, he's from Moonlight. Um, Trevante Rhodes. Yeah. Um, he's really good. Yeah, he is the highlight. And this. Jackie Weaver turning Jackie up Weaver. in everything. Yeah. 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 It's amazing. Can I just ask, is there like a monster in that film that you're not allowed to look at? Like Harry Potter and then you, you freeze or something when you see it's it? It's sort of... Pe- people don't quite know why, but people are being driven mad and basically if they open their eyes outside or they see whatever the thing is, they kill themselves. Oh, is it they just see what the state of the world is Well... Now? You don't really that's know. That's sort of the metaphor, that I think. That could be cool. Because yeah. I thought it was like a creature and I was like, oh, I don't know. There's a kind of rustling in the leaves yeah. kind of effect, but we never Without see this thing and then you freeze. Yeah, you know? yeah, there is something out there. If yeah, it was then, just the state of the world, I could dig that. Well. Because we're all so anxious now yeah. and we're, you know, any little thing and we're all kind of all going off into like panic attacks. I think that... I mean, I haven't seen it, but yeah. if that was the thing, it's like, no, you just actually can't look at what humanity did mm. to the planet. It'll send you crazy. Oh, Keep your blindfold yeah. on. I think that would be... That would yeah, be well, that, that was the metaphor that. I got from it. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, yeah, I think that's yeah, yeah. It's a subtext. Deep. Yeah. The Medusa story. Yeah. Yeah. A yeah. um, bit mm. Lot's wife, too. Mm. There are a lot, lot, lot of fables where you can't really look at yeah. things. Yeah. And in The Favourite. Olivia Coleman yells at the that poor page boy for looking at her. Don't look at me. <laughs> <laughs> All these films are connected. All films are connected. We just keep thinking of Harry Potter. You know the thing and the the Hermione gets frozen because yeah, she yeah. sees the monster and then. That's right. So yeah, every the, time I see that trailer, snake. I think of Harry Potter as like <laughs> some weird creature in the forest. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, Bird Box is another Netflix film. Yeah. Um, Netflix is starting to you know produce and release their own films, and I think it's great that. I'm, you know, I'm into it, yeah. Yeah, I'm into it. Something else I'm kind of into is Climax uh, from writer <laughs> to director. <laughs> what a smooth segue. Oh, I'm so smooth today. <laughs> it's from writer, director and provocateur Gaspar Noe who gave us Irreversible, Enter the Void and Love. Here is another one of his versions of Hell and apparently it's based on a true story that happened in the mid-90s. The film follows a troupe of about 20 Parisian modern dancers from ethnically and sexually diverse backgrounds. They've been rehearsing in a deserted school building in the middle of winter. We see them dance and play euphorically, drinking sangria, flirting and fighting and gossiping, but then someone discovers the sangria has been spiked with LSD. Paranoia and chaos break out. Their mood shifts from controlled to utterly depraved and dangerous. A child's locked in a cupboard, there's violence, sex and death, and there's no escape. Lee, did this film get you off or turn you off? Uh, And be honest. (laughs) Turn me off doesn't quite cover it. I'm not as angry now as I am when I came out of the film. Oh, were you angry? I was furious. Really? I was like... You know what? If you don't have an idea for a film, you don't have to make a film. It's not like it's, it's not like everyone's clamouring for a Gaspar Noe film so badly that anything will do. You can just crap anything out, and like, yeah, that's ninety minutes. Let's put that in a cinema. Like you, just, you don't have to make a film, Gaspar. 
and just sit this one out. Uh, no, I was I hated this so much. Did you? Yeah, this is the my most hated film I've seen all year, and probably oh. a few years beyond that too. Um, wow, I thought it was garbage. Did you see Love, his previous film I, with the three D cum shot? No, mm. uh, okay. you're not selling me on it. But uh, I don't. I, I don't think I'll be rushing to see that one now because I, I sort of <laughs> go on IMAX to see that. <laughs> That was it. Was it IMAX? It was certainly a big screen. It was. Uh, I remember Certain, hearing about um, that. Points, yeah. But um, no, I mean, Enter the Void annoyed me, but I there was some I could see talent in there. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen Irreversible, I have to say. Mm. Um, but no, I've just I've got no time for him now. I think he's a complete poser <laughs> after this film. I'm not. I've got to happy to disagree hear with you. Please do. Um, I think this is a film with some really interesting ideas and some amazing set pieces. Like the initial dance routine is just so beautifully choreographed and shot by Noah himself, you know, with a lot of aerial kind of um, cinematography where you're looking down on these dancers who are all doing their own thing to, you know, 90s electronic dance music. And they're all doing their own thing, but it's coordinated. It's in sync. It's kind of like it's a metaphor for multicultural France and then it just all falls apart once they start suspecting each other of, you know, spiking the LSD. And so you see something quite beautiful and amazing disintegrate. And so there's the sadness of watching something beautiful collapse into depravity and hell. I mean, he is really good at... um, creating that sense of being in hell which seems to involve like a nightclub with constant dance music it features in so many of his films this is hell Mm. yeah that the last half of the film as it got more and more messy just didn't move me or touch me or seem to take me anywhere very interesting i did want it to end when it did but i have to give (laughs) him credit for setting up something you know, it's it's the most amazing dance film that I've seen in a long time. Oh, having having just recently seen, uh, what was it called? P, uh, not Pina. Was it Pina? Yeah, Pina. The, yeah. the Inventors. Yeah, the Inventors yeah. film. Yeah, having just seen that, like, because that's fresh in my memory. I'm thinking uh. when I think dance films. I think, look, I was impressed by the choreography in the beginning. I just don't. Yeah, him shooting it. He was just kind of pointing a camera at people doing impressive things, and it went on for a while. But I don't know. It's like I, I'd certainly agree that it does feel like you're in hell. Um, for a lot of film. The, um, you, you know, you know that feeling when you're sober at a party and everyone else is drunk or on drugs. That's what this film is. Except you can't get away because you're being forced to. You can't like go into another room, step outside to pat the dog. You know, go home. Uh, it's it's just that, and you're forced to spend time with these terrible people. And uh, and yeah, the good news is that they do all die. Um, so that 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 was like there was some relief. Maybe the that's end. the climax he's promising. Yeah. They don't all die. Don't they? No. I wasn't paying attention. You were out of there before <laughs> the end, I can tell. No, end, end, end credits. I was there till the very end credits uh, okay. for, for my sins. Anyway, I'm, uh, I am glad you liked it. A lot of, uh, a lot of uh, people I follow have uh, put this on their best of the year lists, which baffles me but um, intrigues me at the same time. Cassandra, you've, mm. you've heard both of our arguments. Yeah. As Arbiter, are you yeah. more tempted to see this film? Well, this is totally feeding into my theory about films, which is not that original. But it so depends on the situation surrounding when you watch the film. Like, if you saw Climax on a different day, in a different mood, in a different 
whatever. Yeah, you yeah. could love it and vice versa if you mm. saw it, and, you know, on an aeroplane or whatever, you might have hated it. Mm. There's so many factors involved with what you get out of a film. I couldn't agree. I've actually said that Is many it, times on this yeah. show. I believe that wholeheartedly. But, um, you just but not that with this film. Well, I, I, I cannot honest, imagine I have no idea what the film's about from yeah. listening to both of you. I just got, there's a dance at the start and yeah. maybe some people die at the end and there's, I don't know, some drugs or something. Mm. I have no idea what that film's no, about. No, that's the entire plot. Yeah. Mm. That's literally all that happens. But you know, they just make, like, uh, it's a bit arty, I'm mm. guessing. Mm. Yeah. You know how, like, sometimes, and we're going to talk about Lars later, his films are pretty arty. Mm. You know, if you're in the mood and, and it really gets you, it can be perfect. Like, would, maybe stoned people would really like that film. Irritating stoned people. You know yeah. what I mean? They sorry. go, sorry. I get it. I get it. But if, yeah. as you say, you know, you, you're of a certain mind, th- a sober mind or, or whatever. I think you like, have to be. nothing in it for me. I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying this to, to dig at it, even though everything I've said previously has been digging at it. Uh, it might help to be on drugs to watch this film. That's, some films are like that. Yeah. You know, I reckon some films are tailor-made towards people being on drugs or, you know what I mean? Yeah, to, yeah. to really enjoy. Maybe he's... Maybe he takes a lot of drugs. I think it's an anti-drugs film because it makes you feel quite sick by the mm. end. I think it's an anti-film film. Um, Sorry. Okay. All right. It's hallucinatory. It's <laughs> disturbing. It it's hypnotic. It's an experience. And I think everybody would be relieved to get out of the cinema after it. But that doesn't make it a bad film in my book. I'll resist that uh, very tempting <laughs> setup. <laughs> Is that hard? Is there like part of you that's like, do you take that personally? Like, and I'm not meaning you in this situation, mm. but I mean all of us when we love or we really enjoy a film, and then someone goes, "I hated it for these reasons." Absolutely. Like, it's yeah. hard to kind of go. Well, is that a personal? You know, like. I think because you you've had a personal that... connection to something. Yeah. If someone's saying something is bad, then it's like they're saying a part of you is bad. Yeah. Like, yeah. I get that a lot. Like I, I think I. I don't know. I like arguing and debating, so yeah. I don't mind it. I quite prefer when somebody has like takes an opposing view. Yeah. I don't but mind at all. I don't mind yeah. at all. Yeah, it's like it's such a personal thing, yeah. and you and I agree on so many films that I can still be your friend. <laughs> um, if we hated, if if you hated all the films I love, that might be that a problem. That would be a problem. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but this is a controversial film. You know, you yes, you go into a Gaspar Noé film yeah. expecting. To be challenged. Yeah. So, yeah, I can respect your opinion. Thank you. And likewise, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> well, the year is over, which means that we can appreciate films the way they're meant to be appreciated, which is to rank them numerically. Uh, <laughs> I hate this. It's the only way to do it. <laughs> How do you know whether a film is good unless you've compared it to another film? <laughs> I ask you. Um, now, we, we usually do our top fives. Cassandra, you have, I believe, a top one. Yeah, I just wanted to give a little shout out to Boy Raised, written and directed by Joel Edgerton. Um, actually, I don't think it was really, like, I think the, the story was by somebody else and then he mm. kind of came in and wrote it for the screen. And um, as someone who's a really big fan of Joel Edgerton's writing, you could actually tell that watching the film that he hadn't really written it and that if he was going to write a film it would be sort of far more complicated than that storyline sort of was. But I just wanted to give it a shout out because I think it's a really good um, example of how a really good director can take, 
you know, a, a, any kind of script and turn it into a really good movie, which which that film is a really good movie. Mm. And the trailers are, are misleading, I think, for that oh, film. Really? Oh, I could do a whole section on trailers and how much yeah. trailers yeah. annoy me. But it was really, really, really good. It was actually c- quite clever in terms of the, you know, the evil characters, if you will, of the, the parents that are oppressing, you know, their gay son were portrayed correctly, I believe, in terms of our really nice, loving people as was the guy that was, you know, Joel Edgerton played, who's trying to fix all these kids and, you know, put them on the right path towards Jesus and make them straight. And, and that, to me, was gold with that kind of mm. film because I think, you know, with the with the trailer and with those sort of films, you always, you know, you get what you expect, which was these, you know, evil characters, you know, in inverted mm. commas. The and, homophobes. Yes. You know, trying to... And it was the opposite, yeah. which was exactly what I loved about okay. the film because it's more real. It's more scary yeah. that way. Yeah. It's sadder that way. Yeah. And I just thought that's Joel, you know, and, and Nash and they're, you know, really good sensibilities for those things. They didn't ram points home, you know. They, they treated their audience with respect, like they had some kind of, you know, nothing was force-fed. And for that reason, I really enjoyed it and I thought they brought... Um, that script as good as that script could mm. possibly be. And I just wanted to also note that Joel Edgerton outacted Nicole Kidman and Russell Crowe, both of those combined. He was amazing. Wow. Really? He was that good, yeah. And just, again, you know, just just the, the nuance of the performance, the subtleties, it was yeah. bang on. So, yeah. Just to... I will definitely catch up with that one. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Me too. Uh, what about you, Rochelle? What were your your faves of the year? Okay, seeing as you are insisting on me ranking, I'm going to go from number five to number one. Excellent. All right? Just because you know how I love this. It's very exciting that way. I, I always go from number three outwards, but that's fine. You, you do. Yeah. Number five, I have Sorry to Bother You, mm. um, which is Boots Riley's um, sci fi comedy. Politic- it's political, it's hilarious, audacious. Yeah, I just, this film blew me away. It was so unexpected. Number four, Widows, uh, Steve McQueen's um, heist thriller. Number three, A Star is Born. I thought this film was just so beautiful and amazing and well acted, the chemistry between the leads, the music. You know, I was expecting it to be schlock and Mm. it was just not. It was so good. Um, Number two, The Favourite. It was tart, surprising, compassionate and cruel and I just adored it and I think I want to see it again number one Phantom Thread Ah. my mum's number one too really? Mm -hmm. yeah well it came out very early this year in Australia so I'm going to include it in this year's it was just bewitching beautiful um, Daniel Day-Lewis his swan song apparently Um, Mm. yeah just such an intelligent adult film um, Paul Thomas Anderson yeah, so they were my five, but I have to give special mentions to Roma, um, to two Australian films, Strange Colours by Alina Lodkina mm-hmm. um, and Warwick Thornton's Strange Colours. Country. and oh, Strange Country, sorry, yes. Um, was it called Strange Country? Sweet, Sweet Country. Country. Sorry, I typed that wrong. I was listening <laughs> to you guys. Lady Bird and The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Oh, Love nice. them. Good list. Good mm. list. I would, uh, yeah, Phantom Thread probably would have made appearance on mine because I saw it in December and uh, Australian, you know, film writers and critics have a really difficult relationship with release dates. Mm. Uh, I was like, ah, I saw it in December, it's 2017 film, it's on that list. So, okay. uh, so that, that uh, otherwise okay. I would probably have mentioned it as well uh, this year. Um, my five, 
uh, going going from five upwards. Uh, Bad Times at the El Royale. <laughs> we didn't actually talk about this film when it came out, which is a shame because I, I sort of went along reluctantly. I wasn't going to bother. It looked like a throwback to that, you know, the 90s period where everyone was just making Tarantino knockoffs. Mm-hmm. And it kind of is, but it's <laughs> almost a Tarantino knockoff that's smarter than Tarantino Ooh. and doing way more interesting things. I, yeah, mm. I found it very, very satisfying. There's a lot to dig into. I think it's, uh, it's quite underrated. Number four, The Hasterman. Uh, it's a Czech film that is this strange mix of fable, fantasy, horror, historical, drama, comedy. And yeah, it's, just, it's impossible to pin it to a single genre, which is just one of the reasons I found it uh, so engaging. And it's got maybe my favourite ending of the year. Uh, really bold, bold film. Uh, number three, The Green Fog. Oh, uh, this is nothing about this film should work. This should be an unwatchable <laughs> film. It's basically a remake of Vertigo in the form of a clip show, taking clips from films that aren't Vertigo and editing them together to remake Vertigo. Uh, and, but it's maybe the most fun I've had in a cinema all year. It's so funny uh, and just fascinating to see how you can create a film in the editing room without a single frame being shot. Uh, number two, the favourite. See above. Mm-hmm. Uh, number one, further proving that Oscar season is ruining the film experience by backloading all of the best films in December. Roma, <laughs> my favourite film of the year. Uh, I I cried buckets throughout, and um, just have ne- haven't felt so emotionally connected to a film all year. Mm. With that one, so. that film does have some scenes in it that you'll never forget. Yeah, like I just felt myself welling up at certain points, just with so much emotion, mm. um, which you know, yeah, not a lot of films do for me. Yeah, because I'm a hard, cold bitch. <laughs> <laughs> and <Yeah>. cute music. <laughs> Recently, an Australian podcast had such a huge impact that it led to the arrest of one of its subjects. Although the podcast in question, Teacher's Pet, is a true crime podcast and it was investigating an unsolved murder, I think this could be an exciting trend for all Australian podcasts. With that in mind, Cassandra, who have you picked to talk about on Hell is for Hyphenates? Lars von Trier. Yes, I think we should arrest him. Um, why? Oh, um... That was a very Cruelty long walk, so I should animals. be able to justify Cruelty to animals and yeah. audience members. I feel like I need to... Let's, um, we have to address that. I need to be honest up front mm. and say I am not a fan of Von Trier. Lots of people are. I have a lot of problems with him. Looking forward to talking to you about him because I think he is... There is much to talk about. Is, but I'm curious, yeah. why did you pick him? Because most people yeah. pick their favourites. Yeah, well, it is important to say he's not my favourite filmmaker, um, and that's not why I picked him today, because I know that is the flavour. Who's your favourite filmmaker? Chat about them. Yep. I can't pick a favourite filmmaker like I can't pick a favourite song or a favourite film, because it's too difficult. Mm. So I picked him because um, some of his films I love and some of his films I hate. And every time he comes up in conversations with film buffs, actors, producers, directors, or just anybody there's always such an interesting debate that happens uh it, there's a for or there's an against um there's you know there's celebrities that have you know walked off his films because i think i was uh i don't know a lot about this so a lot of it i'm just getting off the internet but yeah. and it's good we started with the animals straight away um but john c Riley apparently walked off the set of mandalay because he was going to kill a donkey for real 
Right. And I don't think there's many people on the planet that would disagree with John C. Riley. He ended up not doing the film. That was the same film that Nicole Kidman pulled out of because of scheduling, mm. although there was a bit of a rustle that she didn't like him either because she had just worked with him in Dogville. And, you know, just there's always sort of this, this controversy around him and, and his films reflect that, you know, so I can't wait to hear what you've got to say about him. Can I just ask, yeah. what cruelty to animals are we talking about specifically? Because this has kind of gone over my head with Lars. Uh, so, you know, his films often feature... And then you're getting killed things, or, yeah. or mutilated. It's a lot but, of it. I mean, every film, I think there's a there's some kind of yeah. sacrifice in some in, way. I just watched the Idiots this morning again, and at the end of it, it said no animals were harmed in the making of this film. But obviously, there's some kind of you know information that Lars does it for real. Well, there's also an, uh, uh, the time. This is an interesting issue that's larger than Lars von Trier. There used to people used to kill animals all the time making films, mm. and you know Milo and Otis comes I was to about mind. To say, you know, I can't watch that film again. Weren't, it wasn't that all the rite of passage when we mm. got to a point in our lives when we realised that the kitten didn't make it over the the waterfall. That or there nearly were every other kittens scene. that was right yeah. because that really changed. You know, mm. my perception of I know, yeah. I know, you know, and. And how dare they... This is how they used to make movies. And yeah. um, are, are we, like, doing... Like, you know, in terms of... We're going to talk about the house that Jack built. Yeah. yeah. In, are we... Are we, we don't have to worry about, like, spoilers I th- or I anything, think we, we or? should probably be a little careful about house that Jack built because it hasn't come out yet. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, Umbrella was very kind in, in letting us see an advance uh, version of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, big thanks to them. Um, but yeah, we yeah. might be a little a little more trepidatious okay. around uh, that one. Well, I won't about the ending, but there yeah. is an animal part in there. There is that was because I was watching it with me, Kate Russell, as you yeah. know, my filmmaker friend, who's you know right into horror, and um, that's her genre of filmmaking. And mm. of course, she's done the makeup and special effects makeup for you know dozens of movies. And that little bit of animal something something came up. Yep. And then we had an instant argument of whether it was real or whether it wasn't real. And I said, of course, it's not real. And she went, it is probably real because it's him. And we yeah. all hate Buzz one too because he kills animals. And she Googled it and it wasn't real. Mm. So maybe as time's gone on, he's sort of, I'm not making excuses, yeah. but um, although I don't think Mandalay's that old. It's not like Milo and Otis kind of old. Uh, no, no, certainly not. But it's also the thing of, like, well, how much is it true? Does he actually do these things or does he just want people to think he does these things? Well, there's also the law. Of... It's, it's against the law to kill animals for filmmaking in Everywhere. multiple countries. Well, I'm sure yeah. maybe not in Brazil or something, yeah. but, you know... Because he doesn't travel. Like, he doesn't yeah. fly anywhere. So mm. all the films, I think, are made in... Yeah, uh, Denmark. In Denmark, or... yeah. So that would, you know, whether, I mean, you know, whether he's a criminal or not, is mm. that's really the issue. Yeah. Um, because you know, killing things for art is—it's—it's it's, it's neither here nor there what you're doing it for. Whether you're rolling a camera on it or, on it or yeah, not is yeah. irrelevant. The fact you're doing it is the problem. Well, I was joking about sending him to jail in the intro, but now you've well, convinced well, me. Well, it's no, it's a, <laughs> it's a fair call. It's a fair call. So, so what was what was your first experience with Von Trier? What uh, was what well, was the film that did it? It was Nymphomaniac, which wow. I will give. And I don't give it out very often, but I will give it five stars. It was wow. a full five out of five for me. And I watched it, the part one, part two. It comes in two parts, but you've got to see the film as one. Mm-hmm. And I was lucky uh, to see it. I saw it at the cinemas. And I saw it in one day <clears throat> with a half a break. And we were touching on this before about how the circumstances around watching a film can be the reason mm. why you love or hate yep. a film. And 
this is part, part of the reason I absolutely love Nymphomaniac, loved it, is because of a silly little thing that happened when I was trying to find a car spot and I couldn't find one. And I had a group of friends that we were all going to watch it together. And because I was late, I, I, they were in the cinema already and I just quickly went up the back by myself. Mm-hmm. And so I went up to the back row and there was no one in the back row apart from some kind of pseudo creepy kind of looking guy and in I went, the back oh, row of Nymphomaniac the back row of Nymphomaniac <laughs> yeah 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 that was and me <laughs> right and I thought oh this is a bit weird you know but, oh god you know but this was a stroke of genius because this is the reason why I love that film so much because I wasn't sitting next to anybody yeah and mm. old mate Creepo figured out I don't know 40 minutes into it that it wasn't the kind of porno mm. that he was after <laughs> way too much drama yeah. going on way too much acting way too much storyline yeah. so he left and he went this is this is not the experience that I was promised, mm. which was, you know, there's all this real sex and whatever. Mm. So then I just had the back row to myself for the rest of the day. Mm. And when we, when we went on the break, I chose to go back to where I was sitting and not sit with my group of friends, which was also stroke of genius because it's so uncomfortable to... Wa- I wouldn't watch that film with anybody sitting yeah. next to me. And I wanted everybody I knew to watch it. I wanted my mum to watch it. I wanted everybody to watch this film. But I thought I can't sit and watch it with anybody because mm. it would ruin the whole experience. Because, you know, and my friends that saw it, they didn't love it. And I wondered whether it was because they weren't watching it with the freedom that I had, which was when all this sex was going on and, you know, there's so much of it and she's addicted to it. So, of course, it's just constant. It gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse as, as, as the film goes on. Um, and then, of course, the second half, you just drop straight into the depths of hell, you mm. know, with, with her addiction, mm. where it takes her is just, you know, beyond disgusting. Um, you don't have to have it with this, oh, you know when you have a scene, especially a sex scene, and then all of a sudden all you can think about is the person yeah. next to you. Yeah. So you are ripped out of that film mm. so quickly and you're just in your mind with them and mm. hopefully it's not your brother or your mum yeah. or, you know, even your boyfriend or maybe it's a date or, you know, you haven't slept with them yet or just whatever it is is ruining the whole thing. Mm. So I loved that film. I just, I just thought it was incredible. It was, I only had two tiny critiques. I thought it was almost perfect. And filmmaking to me just at its finest. Wow. Um, but I do give a lot of credit to the fact that I was in a cinema pretty much by myself and everyone was in front of me. I'm so glad to hear that because yeah. I've been banging on about this theory for years yeah, mostly to people nodding politely, politely at me. I'm so happy to hear you <gasps> espouse so this theory. Yeah. No, if I was sitting with my, if I didn't if I found a park and I was sitting with them I would have been taken out of the film Yeah. because all of a sudden I'd be going oh shit, hang on, oh penis and vagina oh god, oh god um, and then I'm not, li- I'm, not, I'm not in the world mm. anymore, I'm yeah, yeah. in the cinema Mm. And so I'd be just in and out too much and I was able to... I just drank in that film, like, mm. from the beginning. I just went with it. Mm. And I find one of the things I really like about him, which is also why I chose, <clears throat> is I'm always fascinated by his patience with filmmaking and editing because uh, there's lots of, you know, there's sort of similar themes. So you get this theme of nature, you know, it's huge in Nymphomaniac and, and um, a lot of his other films as well. Um it's obviously a big inspiration to him, but he spends so much time, you know, you sort of really linger in a, in a Lars von Trier film. You spend real time doing things, and whether it's in an office or whether it's in a field or wherever it is, it's a lot of time and a lot of seconds that tick and minutes that go by. And when you watch the films for the first time, it feels right and lovely to take that time, and it's really intriguing if you're into that kind of you sure. know, filmmaking, that kind of feeling. 
But what always amazes me is by the time you get to the end, and I think he must have this incredible patience or this deep understanding of filmmaking because when he's in the editing room, he doesn't go back and go, we should probably halve the time of that. We should probably tidy that up a bit. We should probably make that happen quicker. He just doesn't do that. He leaves it almost like he's, he's hyper aware of what it's like to watch his films for the first time. Mm-hmm. And I just find that really interesting because mm-hmm. I don't have that kind of patience if I was editing those films, I'd go, now that we've got to the end and all the big stuff's happened, let's, let's go back to the start, the beginning, and just let's, let's cut a lot of this out. But he always has this, uh, this, this real sensitivity to the small things as much as he has the big things, and I think that's interesting. Yeah. And I think overall it's sort of, it, it kind of becomes part of his trademark, that f- the feeling that you get from it and these kind of weird things that he does about sort of you know, going close, you know, you zoom in on something, you know, and you think, why are we doing this? But it's just his way of kind of going in and out of different things. He's just very, he just takes a lot of time. And I think that takes skill because I don't get bored. Well, actually, some of the films I do, some of them I think are rubbish. But that's, well, not rubbish, but I, some of them, they're hit and miss for me. Okay. Like, I think there's real, when he misses, he misses so badly for me. But yeah. when he hits, he just, it's a home run. And I loved Nymphomaniac. I just... It was the best ending of a film I've ever seen in my life, ever. I uh, so I'm ever. I didn't love Nymphomaniac, yes. and I was really torn because mm-hmm. I thought the ending was right, mm-hmm. and it's it's Did you quite say conf- all right or right, right, like correct, like yes, yeah. like with when you look at every element put together, that is um, my my favorite types of film endings are endings that are completely unpredictable but completely inevitable. Mm-hmm. So that you never saw them coming, but when you look back at them, you're like, yeah, that was the only thing that could have happened. Yeah. Those are the most mm-hmm. satisfying ones to me. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how I felt about that one. It's very difficult for me to say nice things about him because I get so annoyed by... Even Nymphomaniac really mm-hmm. yeah. um, bothered me. And then at the end, I was like, oh, that's that was a really good ending. Wasn't it? It was uh, the best ending of any film I've ever seen. And it Hands was... Down. Yeah, I couldn't it believe almost, that it, it briefly convinced me... Uh, that he wasn't a raging misogynist. <laughs> Just briefly. Yeah, well, this is also a very interesting thing, mm. right, about this. Whether is he that way or is it always the characters in his film that are that way? Um, I don't know. You'd have to meet the man mm. to find out. Um, or, or, or have a chat to Charlotte. I mean, nobody seems to be asking mm. her. She would know. Yeah. She's done multiple films with him. Um, but yeah, some- I did think that was interesting. Watching them, I was like, "Wow, she's coming back for more." Like a lot of actors are like, "I'm one and done. I'm out of here." Yeah, and she just keeps going back. So she's obviously having a better experience. And then oh, and, and mm. Defoe has been in a couple. But I've read that he's done multiple. Yeah. That he <laughs> sees himself as being like the female characters are a representation of himself. So in, say, Melancholy and Nymphomaniac and Antichrist, which mm. are known as the Depression Trilogy, mm. it's about strategy. his depression and these women are kind mm. of like emanations of his own psyche. So, yeah. you know... Did this talk- is, is this something he said? Well, or, yes, or he, yes, he has okay. said that. Yeah. I, find it, I find it very difficult to talk about him in terms of things he says because he is <laughs> a the, provocateur he's a provocateur and yeah. honestly that's my least favorite type of artist i find i find provocateurs so and this comes back to climax and gasper noe mm. um i find provocateurs boring and 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 performative and uh and they're trying to tell me something about them rather than make something interesting 
And mm-hmm. and so with Von Trier, when he comes out at Cannes and says I, whatever he said about Nazis, I sympathise with the it's writer. Not a, it's the but I don't it, listen to him. But, I, that, but yeah, I know. But I so, mean, I literally don't watch his interviews. I don't listen to him speaking. I only have seen his films. Right. Okay. So it's interesting what you're saying. People are making judgments about him based on his personality. Yeah. And when he's, which is very valid, you know, don't he, get me he wrong. He puts it out there. I mean, I mean, this is we're literally talking about auteur theory, like him yeah, as yeah. an author, not just his films. And if we're trying, going to use those elements like him saying these women are me, and I want to believe that and I want to dig mm-hmm. into that, but at the same time, I'm like, were you just trying to stir up the interviewer at the time? No, I think he had a really big depressive episode, which is what these films came out of. Mm. His own sort of mid-life crisis about finding out who his real father was, and you know, he, I think his depictions of depression and mental illness are really like I've never seen any other filmmaker capture it in the same way and in a very convincing way um yeah i like it i like these three films very much well is he it's yeah i think you've hit the nail on the the head in terms of this passionate sort of dislike people have for him is when he's in interviews saying things like um i I sympathize with hitler i understand where he was coming from so all of a sudden now it's a political figure that's making a comment on genocide and genocide is a a bit of a theme that comes Mm. up in his films a lot um and that madness that's that madness of killing lots of people or killing one person is a constant thread that runs through his films as well but I only know about that because that's a bit famous. But in terms of is he a misogynist, from his films alone, I would say there is no evidence of that. Just watching his films. Mm. Him talking as a human being may be very, very, very different. Yeah. It's a little bit like, to me, the Woody Allen thing. Is the guy a creep? Hell's fucking yeah, the guy's a creep. Are his films good? They're excellent. You know, do you? how much do you let somebody's personality yeah. affect your enjoyment of the films? And with someone like him... I do think Woody Allen is a massive creep, but that's another podcast. The, the, the Lars von Trier thing, I think he's very bad at PR. I, I, I honestly would be interested to know how much his sense of humour is just really mm. bad. He's, because I don't think he is yeah. a Nazi. I didn't believe him when he... I that think was he taken was out making of context. a comment on how shitty he was at yeah. that fucking mo- in that moment. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to judge him The interviewer asked him a that. stupid question sure. and he gave a he, stupid answer. And he sort of fucked yeah. it up and then yeah. played on yeah. how badly... Yeah. And English being his second language, there was a bit, there was a lot, a bit lost in translation there. And I think when you've got one of the minds like he does, that he's not afraid of the darkness. That's, he mm. makes films about the darkness. Yeah. So, of course, he's the kind of guy that would look at somebody like Hitler and go, I wonder what it was like from his point of view. That's what his films are like. Mm. You know, you, you look at the whole 360 of a human being, the light, the dark, the crazy, the insane... Man, women, whatever. I, I, so, I, I think I, I almost prefer your interpretation to mine, which is admittedly very unkind, uh, and it has been bothers Von Trier fans who are friends of mine because I, I, I see something like that and I think um, it's a headline grabber. It's like what is what is going to uh, bolster my reputation as as this dangerous provocateur who will say these crazy things, and and mm-hmm. I get that from his films as well a little bit whereas I mean on the misogynist thing Breaking the Waves uh, Dancer in the Dark Dogville I sort of watched in that order I, I like I couldn't quite tell if he was getting off on showing these women getting destroyed by a whole town and community because it was happening over and over again and after mm. a while I was like 
is this a critique or is this just your thing? And then that whole, that personality of, of, of you know, this is a Lars von Trier film and, and pu- putting himself front and centre beyond the dog stuff, the titles that would come out would be, what would you expect a Lars von Trier film to be called? You would expect it to be called Antichrist or Melancholia or Nymphomaniac. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when Nymphomaniac was announced, my reaction was, of course, of course that's your next film. <laughs> Like, I don't even need to know what it's about. It sticks to his subject, does it? Yeah, I mean... but it feels like, I don't know. I, and, 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 like, I'll admit that it is an unkind interpretation, um, but I, I find when, when an artist puts themselves at the absolute forefront of their work, you sort of have to mm. look at the works like that because they're demanding that of you. Well, Nymphomaniac, to me, is a film about addiction. It, it happens to be about sex, which is interesting. It's a good backdrop. Mm. And the fact that it's a woman and not a man makes it infinitely more interesting than if it was a man. It would kind of be just Shame. boring and sick yeah. if it was a guy. <laughs> just as sad for yeah. a man, I'm sure. But what it does to her life and what it does to her, any addiction, anyone that is addicted to anything, mm. and it all starts off this way and fun and blah, 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 and then you just go on that, and that is a relentless ride all the way down. And you really do do go down that you... This is, see, to me, he always kind of redeems himself as a filmmaker because of whatever the, else the film is about is so strong for me that, you know, I never get the feeling with him that it's, you know, sex for sex sake or horror yeah. for horror's sake. Yeah. There's always something to balance it. There's always an intellect. There's always, you know, and I can't stand horror films. You know, it was really difficult for me to, to sit through a lot of, you know, um, Lars von Trier. Like, even uh, Nymphomaniac is not scary, right? Yeah. But it is terrifying. Mm. You know, t- some of it is so uncomfortable to watch and you just, you're on edge. It's riveting. You cannot take your eyes off the screen. And to get me, who hates horror, with a passion, you know how angry you were when you saw Climax? That's yeah. how angry I am when anything horror is on. <laughs> I hate it. But when people are smart enough to get me interested and yeah. to sit through things like, you know, the American Psycho or something, for example, um, I, I have to applaud it and go, hey, you got me, and I hate that shit. It's so, so funny well you say that because um, I've walked out of exactly one film uh, because it was uh, too scary mm-hmm. for me and you were in it. <gasps> no way you were one of those people. I, I was, like, feeling physically ill yeah. watching you get tortured yeah, and yeah. I walked out and I think I saw... <laughs> yeah. And I, I literally ran into you and Greg... McLean yeah. and I, I've, I've told Greg this story so you know and, yeah. I, and I said oh great movie and he said uh, oh is it over and I'm like no and he looked at me like what and you guys because it was at the premiere at Hoyts and you oh. guys just walked off like looking at me like why are you not in still in the film it's still oh, going wow. so um, <laughs> so it's funny so hearing this from you that, yeah, that films yeah, yeah. are too full on because yeah you were we're talking about Wolf Creek by the way guys Wolf Creek do I not say Wolf Creek <laughs> yeah I don't think okay. anyone said the Wolf title Creek. I knew <laughs> you knew but it's, it's yeah I, I would have there were there were um, and I don't want to give too much. I do. I do have criticisms of, of Lars, yeah. and I hope he's listening because <laughs> if he heard what I said, I could make his films even better. But there was a. You, you can be in Washington, the, the third part of the uh, should, the America trilogy. He should run things by me before he puts them out on the conveyor belt. Yeah. No, I'm just joking. He, um, but I would have walked out of the house that Jack built. Right. But he, if he directed something slightly different. But he kind of let something slide and it took took me out of the reality of it for a minute. Yeah. If he had directed it properly, <laughs> just this one little aspect, yeah. and I feel like I, I want to say more, but I don't want to be a spoiler. It's a, just a performance from a certain woman in a certain situation. Okay, yeah. With our lead character. Yeah. 
I don't know if you remember what it, they're on a picnic. Yes, no, no, right? No, yeah. And Lars made a very big error. The film is almost perfect. I, I have a couple of criticisms about it, as I do even with the ones that I love. But if he directed that woman's performance differently or had some makeup paling her out and getting her all sweaty and maybe bloodshotting her eyes a bit or directing her of one of two polar polar opposites and not letting her sit in the middle, I would have 100% walked out of that film and not physically been able to stand watching the rest of it. Right. Because it would have, I would have gone, you know what, Lars, I don't give a fuck about what comment you're making about the world's insane and we're all really psychos and what, what the government can do, why is it different from one man doing it in his garage? All of that would be thrown out the window. I, go, I don't need to learn this lesson because that is too much for me. But I was able to sit through it because that performance was not, not really correct and it took me out of the film. I went, oh, that, that, that's, she's thinking way too much or she's too alert or right. that's not believable. And I know there's no right or wrong way you can react in a situation like that. But he does, that's what I'm saying, he's not perfect. He does make mistakes. Yeah. Little mistakes like that, that make a huge difference. Mm. We have to talk about Dancer in the Dark. Mm. In my opinion, his most successful or at least most commercial film, maybe the, the film that reached the furthest, mm. I feel like a lot of people have seen that movie. I think a lot of people who I know who don't know who Von Trier is have definitely seen or heard of that film. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I think... It's, it's important to talk about for a number of reasons. Firstly, I, it was the first Lars von Trier film I ever saw. And I didn't, when I saw Nymphomaniac at the cinemas, I didn't know it was the same right, director. Right. But the reason I saw it was because I couldn't believe how many men, blokey blokes, said, oh my God, have you seen Dancer in the Dark? Oh my God. Oh my God. Best movie. Best movie. And it hit wow. this chord with men, like so deep. And it wasn't a lot of women going, oh my God, have you seen Dancer in the Dark? It's amazing. It's amazing. The reason potentially being because she's so vulnerable in that movie and that it's such a great injustice and mm. that men watching the film felt that responsibility deeply and that injustice and wanted to be the change that, you know, mm. that they saw. And that's potentially a reason. Um, right. Also very well acted, very entertaining film. Yeah, yeah. I'm wondering uh, if you both have seen The Five Obstructions, yep. the documentary that Lars made in, mm. was it 2003? Um, so he, it's yeah. this documentary where he gets his favourite filmmaker, Jorgen Leth, to mm-hmm. remake his famous short film, which is called The Perfect Human or something, but do it with Lars setting these kind of rules. So you have to make it in, you know, 12 frames per shot or you have to make it as a cartoon. So this short film is remade over and over with Lars playing this this kind of um, impish devilish trying to set traps for his favourite filmmaker because he wants to bring him down. I mean, that's the premise. And he can't because Jorgen Leth just aces it every time. And I just think that film made me love Lars because he was was putting himself up there for, for ridicule and... And also showing his love of another filmmaker, which is what we do on this podcast, is allow mm. people to, mm. you know, enthuse about... You Not know. a lot of people can get away to, with comparing me to the Lars von Trier. Well... Uh, just, uh... <laughs> yeah. I want to hear more about why you dislike him. I mean, you know, and why you dislike his well, films. Five Obstructions is probably a good, good jumping-off point. I find... Again, it comes back to the provocateur thing, mm-hmm. where I, I think he is trying to set up an image of himself... And he cares, I think, more about that than the art, or at least projects to me an image of someone who cares more about his image than, than the art itself. So the five, well, actually, the five obstructions, um, I find it interesting he called them obstructions because 
they got in the way of what Jordan would do to make a film. They got in the way of, of his art, and I felt they were there to trip him up. I know, I know it's sort of a documentary comedy, and we're meant to get enjoyment from watching, and it is, it is an enjoyable watch. Um, but once I started to get annoyed at, at Lars, I started to see it through this filter of, because I watched it years ago, re-watching it again with the sort of my pre-established annoyance. I, I started to get annoyed at him obstructing art rather than constructing it. And it got me thinking about the dogma rules, which I found quite pretentious, where you're not allowed, to, you know, you must have natural lighting, you can't have music that isn't, uh, being played in the scene, I forget all the rules, but watching the results of those rules made me think you've just made a worse film. Mm. And but then I thought about, and we were talking off air about how one of my favorite filmmakers is Steven Soderbergh, mm-hmm. who created similar rules for himself for at least one film, and I had the opposite reaction to that because I thought he was trying to challenge himself to make a film in a different way and to see if the things that he would fall back on if he removed those crutches, would he make better art? Um, The dogma rules, calling it dogma one or dogma two, the idiots or whatever, and putting it up front and sort of being challenging. I found it to be about the image of these these dogma filmmakers and of Lars rather than the film because I didn't enjoy the film more. Mm. I I, I don't think it made for a better film. And it, it it made me irritated at him as an artist. It was a stunt. And I think he himself would admit that he got bored doing that and mm. went on to make films of great beauty and art. Artistry. Yeah. The dogma know. films. I are don't like them. The yeah. handmaid yeah. oh, okay. misses for me. Massive misses. Right. Because the yeah. films early. I can't sit through them. Watching his early me. films, there's so much promise and you can see mm. this artistry mm. of, of like films like, I don't know, Element of Crime or, you know, Medea where he, he really he, he's a more traditional filmmaker when he starts out because he hasn't worked out what type of filmmaker he is. I will say... Do you think he's getting better? That's what I wanted to ask you. And you. Because um, I think he is. I think so, yeah. yeah. I think he's getting better I haven't seen the, the house that Jack built, so I'm not sure if that's the... It's very good. You know. It's very good. Yeah. It's pushing it, and it's pushing it way past my point of comfortability. Yeah. And we were talking about the situation in which to enjoy a film. If you're yeah. anything like me, watch it with a friend and pause... <laughs> Stop it. Stop yeah. and start it if you can. You, it's very difficult to watch in a cinema in, in, in the, on a big screen in the dark if you're a little bit, if you feel uncomfortable. I will know. say I love the ending. Uh, oh, yes. Obviously, one of the things great. we can't talk about yet. Yeah. Um, House of Jack built, I was mostly not sure about it until the end. I was like, yeah. okay, I actually like that. I like that you went there. Yeah, yeah. So he, he, he's, he's Did you the, find the ending just a tiny bit predictable? Because I did. Just uh, a miniscule little bit. It wasn't as good as the end of Nymphomaniac because I did not <laughs> see that coming. Uh, maybe a little bit, but I, I'm trying to remember how, where I was in the moment. I don't know if I saw it coming. I remember thinking, mm. wouldn't it be, when it started to become clear that's where it was going, I thought, well, it's obviously not going there, but wouldn't it be funny if that's it was? That's what I did. Right. Yes, I did exactly <laughs> the same thing. And I said, I said, wouldn't it be great if this happened? And boom, it happened. A little maybe. bit later than I would have had it timing-wise, but it didn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. No, um, yeah. But I, I, I think... Uh, in terms of him getting better, mm. 
as someone who used to want to see everything that came out and be part of every film conversation, yeah. I kept saying, I've never seen another Lars film. And then everyone would talk about Antichrist. Got it. And yeah, I'd go yeah, and see yeah. that. Yeah. And I'd get really pissed off at him after Antichrist and go, okay, now I'm definitely not seeing another so Lars film. you didn't film. like Antichrist, did you? I did not like so Antichrist. So I think that's a hit for him. I think that was a big hit. Mm. Well, I, I want to... It worked. I, I, I do want to circle uh, back to that in a second. Mm. But the thing that really annoyed me about him is having decided post-Antichrist that I did not like Lars von Trier and I had mm-hmm. said on that... Almost as not as an identity, but as a you know when you create have an opinion on something and it and because you're locked into it, it's almost like it's fun to feel strongly about this thing one way or the other. I think yeah. that's where most strong opinions about art come from is how making that decision that you definitely like or hate something, and it can almost be fun to then engage with that art. Uh, knowing that, so I decided post Antichrist that I hated Lars von Trier and everything he made, it's and then I saw because it's a, it's a funny feeling you get when you watch. You couldn't say it's a pleasant feeling. No, you know I like it, but I couldn't say I'll oh, watch a film because you'll feel unreal. Yeah, because that's not how you feel when you watch it. True. Yeah, I mean, I did. I, I sat through the whole thing. I wasn't one of the people who walked out halfway through, and the session I was in, a lot of people did. Mm. But post that, I ended up going along to see Melancholia. So and I don't like that one. You don't like that one? No, that was a mystery. I love Melancholia. I didn't like it. I Boring. was angry at Lars because having... I felt like it was a joke he played on me because having decided that I didn't like his films, oh, yeah. he then made one of my favourite films of the year. Oh, and I was oh, pissed off because I was like, he couldn't even let me hate you. Yeah. But, but like, consistently. I feel like he made that film for people like you. Yes, and maybe. And right, I can make them... Because I genuinely... And I rewatched it going, maybe I was just in a weird mood when I watched it. I rewatched it the other day and went, no, I actually love this film. It's yeah. a beautiful, profound film in my humble opinion. Like, it's just gorgeous. Mm. I found it. You f- yeah, so tell me. Yeah, Did tell, you? Tell you were bored. No, I can't. I tried to watch it again. It's just one of those films I can't get to the end because I just don't care. Really? And I love um, Kirsten Dunst. Yeah. And except for her in that movie. I wow. just... Really? I love her in everything so much. I adore her. She's just such a great, great actress, great person. I love her as a person as well. But her in that film is just... It's just the most batshit boring film. But from I just cannot. I don't like anybody in that film. I, I don't like say, the way I it's filmed. I don't like the writing. I don't like anything about <laughs> it. Not even the opening with the the, <laughs> no, the beautiful those no. those paintings. Oh, the bit of that's yeah, so. nice, but it doesn't have because that's a, that's again a, you know a theme in all of these films that beautiful imagery, and then you know you got all these different kind of mediums flushing yeah. back and forth. But in that film, there's. Maybe you know what I don't suffer from depression. Yeah. Maybe that's it because I'm just like Maybe. that's a yawn mm. fest for me. Like, I, I noticed he is doing that a bit more post dogme when he went. Oh no, I'm going to make you know actual films. Um, he there was because there's a bit of that in Antichrist. I'd forgotten about that until we were watching it, where he does mm. the in, in between all these sort of verite style filming. He has these incredibly beautiful painterly kind yeah. of yes. scenario yeah. makes sense in that mm. film. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> they make sense to me in that film and they're in they're in all of his films in a way this beautiful mm. back and forth of different worlds I like that he goes uh, you know he establishes through all that kind of you know imagery that the film can go anywhere emotionally which mm. is a nice trick really yeah. because then he then he does I, I think I, I'm finding that even though he, he's moved on from the dogmy thing he is there are still crutches he uses mm-hmm. uh, whereas his films all have people telling you their story. So there's a, a voiceover and narration. Um, mm. There is there are chapters. Mm-hmm. They're all broken up into tra- chapters. I find that these are uh, crutches almost that mm. that sort of are now persistent in all of his films. 
where it's sort of a an easy structure, an easy explanation of here is what this person was feeling. Much needed breather though too. Like you kind of get to a point where you need a moment to go. <sighs> yeah. Fuck, that was intense. Yeah. You know, and just kind of break it up a bit. And I've when we were watching the um, the screener for. Uh, the House of Jack built. Which, by the way, I just want to flag again. Yeah. I had a brilliant intro to that film because I had absolutely no idea what it was about. Hadn't seen a frame, never seen a trailer, didn't know any of the actors in it, didn't know Matt Dillon was the star, didn't know anything about anything. Yeah. And that is the best way to watch mm, that film it because it's so funny at the start when you don't know. I would argue it's, it's the best hilarious. way to watch any, any film. film. But yeah. As- absolutely. <laughs> yeah, totally, yes, absolutely. Totally. That film in particular because yeah. when you don't know what's so obvious about it and then you watch it, that whole first section is so funny. And I thought if you if you knew, it wouldn't be funny. It would just be yeah. kind of weird. But for whatever reason, it was the internet connection or whatever, it would the spin, you know, uh, you get a little spinner thing. Yeah. And it was annoying Mia because she just, you know, wants to watch this film. But I was loving it. I'm like, no, I need this <laughs> break. It's like, you know, this is why I could never watch that film in a cinema because yeah. you can't get away from it. It's a lot scarier, a lot more intense than Nymphomaniac. So I, I was very grateful for the the spinning wheel and I'm very happy that it's put into chapters. So watch it with the spinning wheel. <laughs> well, I would say if, if you can, you know, yeah. and you want to watch it and you're female and you get a bit nervous, just wait for it to come out on Netflix or DVD or whatever and just watch it at home. Do you guys feel that he is... Because uh, I've always felt he's afraid of sincerity. Uh, it's something that challenged me a bit. Like that idea I had was challenged a little bit watching some of these films where I would see moments of sincerity and go... Uh, maybe I was jumping the gun a little bit on that, but I I find what what I would again unkindly call lazy cynicism, where like the use of young Americans at the end of Dogville, or coming back to Antichrist, the fox saying chaos reigns, uh, yeah. which just feels like oh this will get chaos people talking, reigns. you know? It's like come on, if you're not going to take this seriously, so that's what you you mean by you think that's like him being a provocateur. Yeah. See, that just made complete sense to me. I totally got why that fox said that. You know, that I, just, I don't know. Like, what... I just... I don't see him in that way. When the feeling I get from his films is not that he does things on purpose. Yeah. I just think he, he allows things to go as far as and wide. He doesn't... Which is kind of a really European thing, really. You know, like, Australians are very conservative and they'll put, you know, lines around things they won't, you know, cross yeah, boundaries yeah, yeah. and stuff. He's just like, you know, it's all just dreamscape to him. It's all just let your subconscious flow with the darkness, with whatever, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, but I did get the feeling, though, the only time I've ever got the feeling that he was more excited about maybe some of the central imagery than the, than the underlying themes was with the house that Jack built. Right. I got the feeling that he was a little bit excited about some of the stuff that happens in that movie. Yes, I think um, I For agree. the first time, yeah, I yes. got that feeling with that film, for yeah. sure. But sincerity, I mean, would, where would you put a film like Breaking the Waves? I, I, I was quite bothered with it the first time I saw it years and years ago. And I thought it was very, very well made, but I found it perverse almost. Mm. Like there was too much pleasure being taken in, in the mm. downfall of this woman. It was interesting hearing him talk about it. And, and this, this was a quote that, that uh, I thought about a lot where he said, I was determined to write a story that was so far-fetched and so full of cliches that no one could take it seriously. But of course the audience liked it. 
all you have to do is come up with something really stupid and it will become a great success. And that comes back to the cynicism where I think that is a really, that is maybe the most sincere no movie he's made. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think he's embarrassed by it and said, oh, I was playing a joke on you all and you all fell for it. And uh, I didn't even mean it. Like, you know, <laughs> puzzle, that's, puzzle. that is what I get from that. And yep, so the, yep. the moments of sincerity in his films, mm. he undercuts because I feel he is deeply embarrassed by them. I just, all I see is sincerity in his movies. Isn't yeah. that interesting? I just see something so, I think what I get for a lot from his films is he allows things to happen rather than enforces things to happen. Do you know what I mean? Like, and the sincerity mm. to me is in the performances. It's in the acting. He always picks really good actors and that's, that's true. testament yeah. to him. Mm. Yeah. If he was insincere, there'd be boobs and breast implants and you know what I mean he'd pick a particular kind of girl oh, there are different types um, of insincerity I think but I, I yeah. see what you mean I think that yeah you know what I mean he'd, yeah to put it bluntly he'd pick girls he wants to fuck if yeah. he was an insincere filmmaker um, but he never does he always I don't know insincere I wouldn't say as a person he may be very insincere yeah. but I think as a filmmaker he's a very sincere filmmaker I think he means he means to release people from their own emotions when they watch his films. And I think that is sincere. I think he does that on purpose for us. Well, what else is the point? I mean, yes, it's mm. exciting and entertaining in a sense, but um, he's not a shallow filmmaker because I, I wouldn't yeah, be talking about him right fair. now if I thought he was. I mean, there's, yeah, I mean, even I'll admit there's a lot to talk about with his films. and But I have a great imagination. I can project onto <laughs> things really well. Yeah. And he could be, like, the shittest filmmaker ever, but my brain is just filling in all these gaps. I mean, that would be too coincidental for it happened so many times. But that it's, can happen. Yeah. Well, yeah, maybe. But and but at the same and time, the, that's the probably... The genius is you. That's probably... Be, well, yeah, you, you are yeah. the genius. That's right. Uh, our filmmaker of the month, Cassandra McGrath. Well, you know, I mean, I'm just... I'm just as no, 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 no. I, you know what I mean? I think, like, I think could, your thing is better than my, th- mm. my thing, which is... I think it's... Be- I, always, it's better to like something than not like something. Mm. So I, I weigh... You know, I generally maybe not vocally on this podcast, mm. but I generally defer to someone who will like something even if I don't like it because I think they've seen something that I don't. Yeah. Uh, I found it very difficult with Climax, <laughs> but the, most of the time. Um, and I think maybe I'm projecting, like mm. I'm filling in the gaps in a negative way by seeing, by filtering everything I see because post-Antichrist I was like, I'm done with you. Uh, maybe I'm filtering yeah. things through that, but at the same time I still love Melancholia, so yeah. maybe he can break through to me. I reckon he's going to make another film that you'll love. Yeah. One more. That'd be nice. <laughs> and it'll I'd be, be something kind of light and fluffy and it'll be kind of like a comedy or something. Well, actually, no, because I didn't like the boss of it all. So... Right. Ma- yeah, so maybe maybe it won't be a comedy. But I know what you mean, because I don't... Oh, I forget his name now. And you're just going to go, oh, my God. But I... Don't, what's that filmmaker's name? Everyone loves him. And he made, um, you know, the film with Naomi Watts. No, I had to have someone explain oh. it to me. You know, the um, Mulholland Drive. Who's oh, that Lynch, Lynch. David Lynch. Right? Yeah. I've seen, tried to sit and watch a lot of his films, and I'm just not a fan. And I need, like, filmmakers, people like yourself, to explain to me why I should sit through all this stuff. And yeah. the closest anyone got was explaining Mulholland Drive. When it was, like, I need a booklet to watch that film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When it was sort of presented to me, I went, actually, yeah, that's pretty good. I didn't pick that up watching that right. film. I had to be told. But his other films, and oh I'm like, oh, forget it. 
well, shouldn't be bothered. No, that's, so I get why people don't like Lars von Trier because he's sort of there's an effort required to watch the film. And it's fascinating you say that because Lars von Trier made a show called The Kingdom, mm-hmm. set in a hospital, and I watched it. Uh, after friends had told me about it like years and years and years ago I never, never got it before I knew who Von Trier was and I finally watched it the other day this miniseries and I reckon Von Trier watched Twin Peaks and went of course he did I want to do that 100% he's and been in 100% <laughs> but I don't think he could do it like yeah. I watched the, the, the Kingdom was interminable for me anyway mm-hmm. but yeah just and I'd completely forgotten about that until you said Lynch mm. but um but, you know, it's like filmmakers that there's an effort on your behalf. Yeah. You don't sit back and enjoy a Lars von Trier film. You know, like you sit around and watch, you know, something that... You know what I mean? Yeah, it's yeah. just... It really takes... It takes a lot from you. And they... But this is why I also chose him. Those... Like, Nymphomaniac stayed with me for probably five days. Hmm. It was really... You know, um, House of Jack built. It's at least 24 hours. I kept waking up in the middle <laughs> of the night with these images and I just wrestling. I was so unsettled. And I feel that way, you know, after Antichrist, it leaves you with this... It doesn't disappoint in that way. And I think, well, yes, it's it's like having savoury food. You know, sometimes you want sweet food, but sometimes you want something really salty. And here's the salty yeah. for me. If you're in the mood, <laughs> oh, it really just it gets you perfectly. So wow. that's why I picked him. That's a great note to end on. Yeah. Um, Cassandra, thank you so much for joining Thanks us. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, no, it's good. Thank you, and uh, <laughs> we'll see the rest of you next year. Bye bye. Bye.